0: The following audio is from Life Center Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au Awesome. Well, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50, um, we're going to be reading verses 15 to 21 uh, this morning. It's not going to be where we spend most of our time. That's where we're going to be landing this morning, where we're going to be finishing up. Uh, So Genesis 50, 15 to 21, the words will be on the screen behind me. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, If Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the suffering we caused him. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before he died, your father gave a command. Say this to Joseph. Please forgive your brother's transgression and their sin, the suffering they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when their message came to him. His brothers also came to him, bowed down before him, and said, We are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good, to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this wonderful example that we have in this person, Joseph, who points us towards how wonderful you are, Jesus. And so, Lord, as we study your word this morning, as we spend this time opening up the, the thing that you've chosen, the thing that you've given us to reveal yourself to us. Lord, we ask that we would grow in our faith, we would grow in our understanding of you, Lord, we'd grow in our knowledge and all of those things. But, but bigger than that and deeper than that and better than that, Lord, we ask that we would trust you more. We ask that we would grow in our affections towards you, Lord. We ask that, we would, uh, that you would reveal your face to us, show us how wonderful and truly excellent and magnificent you are for us, Lord. Holy Spirit, where there is anything that you don't... Of my notes, Lord, anything of my notes that you don't want to be heard, Lord, may that be forgotten. May that, be, may that disappear. May you be glorified in all things, Lord. May we walk out of here saying, wow, Jesus is just amazing. He's just incredible, Lord. So, Holy Spirit, we, we can only trust in you to do that for us. So, Lord, we ask that you would do that for us this morning. Amen. Well, we are in a series in the moment where we're walking through the whole Old Testament. And we're spending eight weeks going uh, right from Genesis right all the way up to the New Testament in preparation for Christmas. And our hope is that we would see at least three things as we do this. We want to see that there is one big story that unites the whole Bible. We want to see that that story is centered around and fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And we want to see, we want to know that it's, I want you to know that it's totally possible to find your way through that story. It's totally possible to to understand what the story is and how to navigate your way through it. And in fact, the more you understand this story, the more confident you're going to be in God's unbelievable and unending love towards you. That the God of the universe has actually positioned himself in such a way that is for your good, because that's what brings him ultimate glory so just to give a bit of a recap of where we've been so far we're in week number three in week number one we looked in the beginning of genesis where god created the heavens and the earth and he desires to dwell with his people god created the garden of eden and he put people to live in that garden so there would be god's people living in god's place under god's blessing which is another way of understanding god's kingdom it's where god rules over his people but Then sin came and messed that up. And the question became, how will mankind come back into the presence of God? And so last week we looked at uh, God's covenant with Abraham. And and largely, this covenant was the promise that God was going to fix what got broken in the garden. God was going to restore mankind to to be his people, living in his place under his rule. And this was going to begin with Abraham. And then next week, we're going to be looking at how uh, God rescued the Israelites out of Egypt. We're going to be looking at the Exodus story. And so really the question for today is, how on earth did we get from uh, childless Abraham in Canaan to a nation of slaves in Egypt? How did we get from Abraham who, when we left off last week, he didn't have any children at that stage? to next week, we're going to be looking at the story of the Exodus. Did something go wrong with God's plan? Did did, did someone mess up? Did something go wrong with that? And the answer is no. This was part of God's plan. And one of the things that we will learn again and again is that God is faithful to do what he said he's going to do. He is always faithful. He's always going to do what he said he would do. And we know this because embedded into God's covenant with Abraham, which we looked at last week in Genesis 15, is two important verses, and I kind of skipped over them last week, saying we're going to be covering these in the next couple of weeks. So in Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14, it says that the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain. Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. So that's in Genesis 15, where God promises this to Abraham, and then that's what we see play out in the book of Exodus. So it's clear that what happened in Egypt was part of God's plan to do what he said he was going to do. So how do we get from childless Abraham in Canaan to uh, a nation of slaves in Egypt? Well, we have to look at the story of Joseph. Joseph is an important bridge in this story. Now, Joseph's story spans around 14 chapters in the book of Genesis. Genesis 30, 37 to 50. So we're obviously not going to cover every single part of Joseph's story today. In fact, um, I think it was two years ago, we we did a 10-week series on the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, and even 10 weeks in this story, at least to me, seemed pretty rushed, and so there's just no way we're going to cover everything today. But I do have two questions which will just help us understand uh, the position of Joseph in the the Word. The questions are this. Firstly, how does Joseph's story contribute to the overall story of the Bible, How does does Joseph fit? How does this contribute to the overall story of the Bible? And secondly, how does Joseph's story fit into our lives? Or or maybe a better way we could ask that is, uh, how does the story of Jesus change our story? So let's look at that first question. How does the story of Joseph fit into the overall story of the Bible, of the Old Testament? Well, following on from last week, God begins to fulfill his promise to Abraham with the arrival of his son Isaac who inherited God's blessing from his father. It seems that this covenantal promise that it was made to Abraham would be passed down like an inheritance to heirs. And it goes to Isaac over his older half-brother, Ishmael. Then Isaac had two sons, twins actually, Esau and Jacob. And Jacob, who was the younger brother, became the re- recipient of God's blessing over his older brother, Esau. And this is a fascinating and very important development because it was a cultural norm that the oldest child, the oldest son, would be the primary heir to the father, inheriting vastly more than than uh, inheriting vastly more than any of the younger siblings, but God operates according to His gracious choice and not according to cultural norms. We might get upset sometimes about the way that God does stuff, that it doesn't quite fit with us. It kind of grinds against what what we think is normal, what we think is proper. But God does not operate according to cultural norms. God operates according to his free grace, his gracious choice. Now, Jacob is a bit of a character. His name uh, actually means deceiver or supplanter, and that basically sums him up. He's a bit of a dodgy guy. If you know anybody named Jacob, then you can, you know, tell them that next time. He probably knows that. Jacob probably is aware of that, and that's why he he hasn't talked to you about that. In fact, the name James, which is my real name, like Jimmy is short for James somehow. um, James is a derivative of Jacob, so I know that because of that. So, if you want to start calling me the deceiver, I won't appreciate that. That won't be very nice at all. Um, Anyway... Jacob's a character, Um, he tricks his brother Esau, he deceives his father Isaac, and he ends up being deceived by his uncle Laban. And not only that, but Jacob has a bit of a problem with favorites. He has two wives, Leah and Rachel, and Rachel is his favorite wife. He has 12 sons, and out of the 12 sons, Joseph is his favorite son. And this deception and this favoritism creates quite a dysfunctional pattern in the life of the family of God. Now, importantly, at one stage in Jacob's life, God renewed the covenant that he made with Abraham, this time with Jacob. And God gives him the name, God gives Jacob the name Israel. He becomes the namesake of the nation. So, one of the questions we should ask then is why on earth did God choose such a wretched person as Jacob, change his name to Israel, and that becomes the name of the nation of Israel that we know today? And the answer is. God operates according to his gracious choice and not by our conduct. If God deemed to work through someone as messed up as Jacob, if God would choose somebody like Jacob, isn't that just such hope for you and I? Isn't that just a wonderful thing? We go, oh man, that is good news. That is good news for me. I mean, maybe not you, maybe just, that's just for me, but that is good news that God looks at us and he doesn't, he doesn't, he isn't pulled off by our sin. He, he moves towards us in his grace. Well, Jacob's sons, they become a bit of a ratbag group of guys. Have the same father, but four different mothers, and these guys are a bit of a mess. Like, I don't know if you know... Like, you know this, every now and then you come across a family, and it seems like everybody in that family just has issues coming out of their ears. Like, it just whatever it is, they're just making the, this kind of wrong decision. Maybe you came from one of those families, maybe that's you, and you don't really want to put up your hand right now, and we all understand, that's totally fine. This is the family of God. These guys are a bit of a mess. They, they were meant to be, if we remember the covenant, they were meant to be a blessing. A family, that would be a blessing to all the nations around them, and yet they're this dysfunctional group. And if I can encourage you to go home and read, read Genesis 25 to 50 this afternoon. It might take you a little while. Or you can read like four chapters a day, and by the time you get to next Sunday, you should be there. But you'll read that, and it will be, you'll go, wow, those people are a mess. Those people are messed up. And this dysfunctional family sets the stage for what we're studying today, because within this family comes one who redeems the rest of the family, and becomes a pivotal character for the promises of God to, to bring to pass what He promised to Abraham. Joseph was the second-born son of his fa- sorry was the first-born son of his favorite wife Rachel, which makes Joseph his favorite son. And his brothers become jealous, and being full of spite, they they beat Joseph up, and they put him into a pit, and then they sell him into slavery. And then they trick their father into believing that their brother Joseph was dead. And if I can give you just a a bit of an example of how dysfunctional these guys were, they didn't actually tell their father that Joseph was dead. They just presented him with the evidence of Joseph's coat covered in animal's blood. And then they allowed their father to invent the lie. And they allowed their father then to believe the lie that he invented himself. But that's manipulative, right? There's there's no room for for Jacob second-guessing the death of his favorite son because he was the one who actually made that up without realizing it. But Joseph wasn't actually dead. Quite the opposite, in fact. He became a slave in the house of an Egyptian elite named Potiphar, and because God was with Joseph, uh, Joseph rose to prominence in Potiphar's house, becoming the manager of the entire household. But after being falsely accused of sexual assault by Potiphar's wife, he got thrown into prison where he met a cupbearer and interpreted a, dream, interpreted a dream for this cupbearer. Now years pass and the journey, the journey kind of seems to end for, for Joseph at this stage, but, the bearer, uh, but later on, years down the track, Pharaoh had a dream and was troubled by this dream, and his cupbearer remembered Joseph from prison and vouched for Joseph, and he was given the opportunity to stand before Pharaoh himself and interpret his dreams. Now God was again with Joseph, and so Joseph did not disappoint. He interprets these dreams, and in terms that these dreams were prophetic, uh, Joseph interpreted them to to foretell of a terrible famine that would come and, and wipe out the kingdom of Egypt if they didn't actually intervene. And not only that, but um, he gave some sage advice concerning the correct administration of Egypt's natural resources to survive the famine. So Pharaoh not only released Joseph from prison, but actually made him the prime minister of Egypt, uh, second only to Pharaoh himself. Joseph began quite doing well for himself. He was now the prime minister of this superpower, Egypt. And you can get the sense as you read through Genesis that he feels like his life, it's time for him to move on, time to forget canaan time to forget the family time to move on he gets married he has a couple of kids and he names the names his first son manasseh saying god has made me forget all my hardship and my whole family and his second son he named ephraim saying god has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction you can read that in genesis 41 and that's an important detail Because it seems to us now that the book is kind of closed on the family. Like Joseph's like, okay, time to move on. What's happened in the past, that's in the past, it's all good. But it's time for me to move on. But God was not done with this family. And the hurt and the betrayal that Joseph experienced was yet to be resolved. And not long after talking about Joseph's kids, the story immediately shifts back to Canaan. And we learn that the family of God, Jacob's family, the, the 11 remaining brothers and their families, they weren't doing well in this famine. And so hearing that uh, Egypt is doing quite well, they, uh, Jacob sends his 10 older sons, not Benjamin, he sends his 10 older sons to Egypt to buy a grain. And of course, Joseph sees his 10 oldest brothers. And he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And then in Genesis uh, 42 to 44, ensues a a really tense uh, drama that is basically, I think, is almost unmatched in Scripture. The story is filled with so much tension. There's back and forth. as Joseph, he's trying to deal with this sudden upheaval of his life. It's like the dust has finally settled in his life. And then Genesis 42 just kicks all the dust up. And it goes, it goes mental for Joseph and everything he's confronted with is old, um, with his past. The brothers have no, no idea that it's him, um, but Joseph starts treating them rather harshly because of um, just the emotional upheaval that he's experiencing, and the brothers, they don't know it's him, but they start figuring it's probably because, Joseph, oh, probably because of these things that we did to Joseph all those years ago. And it, it reaches this climax where Joseph, being totally overcome with it all, with emotion, finally breaks down and he unravels in front of his brothers and he reveals his identity to them. He breaks down in tears and he kisses them and he forgives them and he embraces them and he reveals his identity to them and he forgives them and the family is reconciled. And as you round out the chapters of Genesis, we see how it comes together. The famine is so severe that Joseph actually uh, moves his family from Canaan to Egypt now if you remember Genesis fifteen and Genesis twelve where God promised the land of Canaan to Abraham, this feels like the story is going backwards. It feels like what's what's wrong here? Like why is, they were meant to be in Canaan, why are they going to Egypt now? We've got to remember Genesis fifteen, thirteen. This is part of God's plan. It was here in Egypt that God would multiply this family and cause them to grow quickly and it would be following affliction and slavery that God would come and rescue his people and take them home to be his people living in his place under his blessing, under his rule. You see, this story is all about God's faithfulness to bring forth the things that he promised that he would do. God is faithful in everything he does, and even when families, strife, or a famine threatens God's promises, God's, the family of God, God is working through these extraordinary moments to bring about his plan. You see, Joseph is a Christ figure in the Old Testament, which means that he points towards Jesus Christ. He's, he's a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. He shows us what Jesus Christ is like, and this is how we've got to kind of read the Old Testament, We've got to read it as if the story is not quite finished yet, as if they are waiting for someone to come and make it all right again. Because, of course, they were. It's this eager longing, this eager waiting for, the, for this person, this, this one who is to come. And, of course, he does come. And This is what we celebrate at Christmas, the, the arrival of the king. We're having this discussion this morning about Christmas decorations. And when do you start listening to Christmas music? Now I have always been of the opinion that you don't start until the 1st of December. And that's not because I don't like Christmas, that's because I love Christmas, I love carols. And I don't wanna, it's like having ice cream every day of the week, after a while you're gonna get sick of ice cream, I just don't wanna get sick of it. But then last year, because of 2020, and we don't need to explain that, we just need 2020, I was like, midway through November, I was like, let's just start the carols, let's just do it. And then this morning, the question came, when are we gonna start singing Christmas carols? And I was like, you know what? Let's start, let's start singing in like mid-November, I, I think. I love I, like. I don't know how you guys feel. Some of you would be like, I don't know, it's a bit early. Nah. And I've got a biblical reason to back it up. Because it's demonstrating the longing as we wait for the King to come. Like, I don't know how you feel. Like I went into Kmart four weeks ago and there was Christmas wreaths for sale. And one part of me was like, Ugh, bring out Christmas already. Another part of me was like, yes, the King is coming. That's how you've got to read the Old Testament. The King is coming. In fact, that was one version of the title of the series. It's going to be The King is Coming, that we're going to call the series. Let's start looking forward towards Christmas, not just because of presents, but because it demonstrates God came. And Joseph points towards this God who sent his son. In the same way that Joseph was hated and despised by his brothers, so too Jesus was hated and despised by his own. In the same way that Joseph was sold by his brothers for pieces of silver, so too Jesus was sold out for pieces of silver. In the same way that God was with Joseph, we know that God was with his son, Jesus Christ. In the same way that Joseph resisted the temptation to to sin with Potiphar's wife, so too Jesus was righteous in everything that he did. In the same way that Joseph was falsely accused and punished for a crime that he did not commit, Jesus was falsely accused and he was punished for sins that he did not commit. In the same way that Joseph forgave his wretched brothers and not only redeemed them from the dysfunction that they found themselves in, but also provided for them everything they needed, so too Jesus forgives all who come to him in repentance, that he might redeem them and give them everything, provide for them everything that they need. The entire story screams out, this is about Jesus. This, the whole story is this is about Jesus. When we read this story, we've got to imagine ourselves, Not like when, if you were to cast yourselves in the story, you're not Joseph, I'm not Joseph, none of us are Joseph. We are the dud brothers who keep making stupid mistakes over and over and over again, and we need a Joseph figure, we need a Joseph to come and rescue us. Jesus is our Joseph, and he's a far better Joseph, a far better redeemer than Joseph is. But there's something else here in this story. And embedded into Joseph's story is another indicator that God had not forgotten his promises. And I want to draw our attention to this because this is wonderful. In Genesis chapter 49, Jacob, the father, the, the, he is nearing the end of his life and he brings his sons before him to bless each one of them. And to each of his sons, he gives somewhat of a predictive word of their future. And in very importantly in Uh, he he comes to the fourth eldest son, Judah, and we get in his blessing to Judah this very clear hint of the one who is to come. And he says in verse 10, Jacob blesses his son Judah and he says, The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. One would come from the line of Judah and that one would hold the scepter. A scepter is the symbol of God's rule. Oh, sorry, the symbol of a king's rule. The one who holds the scepter is the one who is king. And this king would come from Judah's line. And the obedience of the peoples, which is a reference to the whole world, belongs to him. This is what transpires. And we can read in both Matthew and Luke as they list the genealogy of Jesus, that he does in fact come from the tribe of Judah. It's another piece of the puzzle, another clue about the one who the Old Testament eagerly waits for. In the garden two weeks ago we read about the fact that there was going to be one coming and this one would come and he would crush the head of the snake. He would strike the head of the snake and the snake would strike his heel. That God was going to fix this at immeasurable cost to himself. And then last week we looked at the fact that from Abraham's offspring all the world would be blessed through him. And now from Joseph we learn that this one who is to come isn't going to be just a regular person. This one to come is going to be a king. All the nations will bow down to him. Tribute will come to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. This is where the story of Joseph fits into the big story of the Old Testament. It's about God's faithfulness to preserve the family of God during the famine and by sending a Redeemer to protect and to provide for them. We get these glimpses of the one who is to come, the one in whom all the promises of God find their yes. That's where Joseph fits into the story of the Old Testament. Second question. How does Joseph's story fit into our lives? Or another way we can ask it is, how does the story of Jesus change our story? In the final scene before Joseph's death, we come across one of the richest um, stories you might find in the Old Testament or in the Bible, I find this incredibly moving. It's heartbreaking, it's heart-wrenching, it's quite sad, but then it's lovely and, and wonderful at the same time. Jacob, Joseph's father, and Abraham's grandson had just passed away. And his death triggers something horrible in the brothers. It's like it brings to the surface a horrible pain that had been smoldering in the brothers for decades. It had been 17 years since the brothers had been reunited with Joseph. 17 years since Joseph had forgiven them, since he had broken down in front of them and wept and cried and embraced and kissed each one of them. 17 years since Joseph forgave them. But something happens here which indicates that these brothers didn't quite feel forgiven by Joseph. They didn't quite uh, receive his forgiveness. They didn't feel forgiven. And so they make an attempt in securing forgiveness from Joseph in quite a manipulative way. They send some messengers to Joseph saying... Hey, Joe, uh, listen, some, Dad told us this stuff that he didn't tell you, but he, we, he told us we have to tell you this. And, and when, when Dad dies, um, you're not allowed to kill us. That's what Dad wanted us... That's what dad's final words, you're not allowed to kill us. Now, there's no indication at all that Jacob ever said that. This is a lie. But we can see that what they're doing, they're, they're trying to manipulate Joseph. They're trying to get him to continue to forgive them. And, and this causes... Joseph to to cry. Joseph wept at this. Why? Was it because Joseph hates liars? No, that's not it. I mean, sure, but it's not why he cried. It's because he had already forgiven them. He had already shown grace and mercy to his brothers. But obviously this grace and mercy, obviously this forgiveness did not have the kind of traction that it needed in their hearts and lives. Seventeen years earlier, Joseph had broken down and wept and forgave them. He embraced and he kissed each one of them. It was real, but something crept inside of their hearts to say, no, that wasn't real. It wasn't long-lasting. Joseph might still have a grudge. What if he hasn't forgiven? What if he's just waiting for Dad to die, and then once Dad dies, he's going to order our execution, and that's just going to happen? See, this is how insidious sin is. Even though we are forgiven, We can still not feel forgiven. And sin, which might have occurred decades ago, whether it was by us or against us, it can fester and it can rot. And like a manky weed, it can spread out its roots and cause us to question whether or not we are forgiven. It causes us to to be apprehensive of God's grace. Even though we are forgiven by Jesus, we can still sometimes feel, often feel that we're not. Is this an experience you've had where where you felt like, yeah, I I know Jesus forgives sins in in general, but specifically for that thing that I did five years ago or ten years ago or five hours ago, whatever it is, can God really forgive that? Like, is that real? Does that, actually, does that actually count? Maybe you've got sin in your heart right now and you don't feel forgiven for it. Maybe that sin is gnawing away at your soul and every time you think of it, it's, the, it's that warm flush of guilt that comes over you and you just don't feel forgiven. If that's you, man, I love you. And I would love to talk to you about that. I would love for you, I would, I would love for you to talk to somebody about that. Confess your sin. If, you, if we want to come and talk about that. The struggle, the brothers, these guys are struggling to receive the forgiveness from their brothers. And they try to essentially leverage or purchase this forgiveness some other way. They're trying to get something from Joseph that he freely gave to them, he had already freely given to them. Kirsty and I, um, we love rom-coms. We love them. Um, it's one of my favourite, probably my favourite genre of movie. I think I like them more than Kirsty does. Um, one of our favourites is a movie called Stranger Than Fiction. Um, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Will Ferrell, really great movie. And in the middle of this scene of the movie, there's this really critical scene where Harold Crick, who is the tightly wound tax agent, he is auditing Anna Pascal the beautiful, free-spirited baker. And <clears throat> after making his life very difficult all day, Anna Pascal, while he's auditing her, he, she doesn't like it, she makes his life difficult all day, and then she feels sorry for him, she feels bad, and out of compassion, she makes for him a batch of warm, gooey, delicious chocolate chip cookies. <clears throat> Misreading the situation, though, Harold Crick declines the gift since it's against the rules for tax agents to accept gifts. And so he instead offers to purchase the chocolate chip cookies from Anna Pascal. But this hurts Anna Anna Pascal more than Harold can know. And she dumps the cookies in the bin. And he walks off into the rain, accepting that his life has become a tragedy. Friends, how often are we like Harold Crick? How often do we balk at the grace of God? How often do we resist or are apprehensive about the warm, gooey, delicious heart of Jesus Christ? Now, you might have a bit of a problem with me saying that Jesus' heart is warm, gooey, and delicious, but I can't think of better adjectives. I don't even know if that's the right word for it. is that adjectives? Is that right? for? Yeah, I'm looking at English teachers. Thank you, adjectives. I can't think of better adjectives to describe a king who would run after me so urgently and so incessantly after my sin killed him. I can't think of a better way to describe the heart of Jesus. His heart for us is big and warm and delicious somehow. and It's the kind of thing we need to understand this. How often do we, though, decline the free gift of grace and instead try and purchase grace from Jesus Christ, hoping that we can trade Jesus for something? Like, Jesus, if you would just forgive me, I will be good. Or, Jesus, if you can look upon all the good things I've done, maybe that will make it easier for you to forgive me. Like, Jesus, look at all the... I've, I've been really good this week. I haven't fallen into that particular sin all week, so therefore, please answer this prayer. Therefore, please forgive my sin. And we try and trade with Jesus. How often do we try and trade with Jesus for something that he's already freely given us? We talked about this in quite a bit of length last week and I'm talking about it again this week because I'm just convinced that so many people struggle with this. The more I talk about this, the more I realize it's such a common thing. In fact, um, I've been messaging my theology professor from Bible college back and forth and he wrote this this post on Facebook this past week about this. And it just floored me. And I wrote to him straight away. And I was like, hey, Alan, did you read, write that for me? Like, did, seriously, can you just tell me honestly? Were you writing that for me? And he was talking about, there's this moment in, in Matthew 9, where, where Jesus forgives the sins of a paralytic. And he says in Matthew 9, verse 1, have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, maybe your translation says, Take heart. Now, I've never noticed that before, but the question is, why do we need courage to accept the grace of God? When when Jesus offers forgiveness to this paralytic, why does he say, have courage, be brave, take heart? I think accepting forgiveness requires courage because it means that we have to admit that we're not actually in control. We've made a big mess of our lives and we've got no way of fixing it. And admitting that is really scary. It really, really is. Like we can say, yes, I'm a sinner. We can agree to that in theory, in general, as a bit of a gloss upon our entire lives. But when we start getting into the nitty-gritty stuff, the stuff that nobody knows about, the stuff that the person next to us doesn't know about, the stuff that we worry, if they find out that about us, they'll reject me forever. When we start getting down to those details, that's when it gets really scary to confess our sin. That's when it gets really That's when we need courage. You see, when we come to the cross, if we come showing off or, or come trying to justify ourselves, trying, if we come to the cross with Jesus Christ, we come to grace saying, look, I, I can try, kind of make myself a good candidate for salvation. I can make myself a good person that God, God might, it might be easier than for God to forgive me. We nullify the grace of God if we come with anything but open hands, but open hands, empty hands with nothing to contribute, if we come without a a huge list of regrets and mistakes that we've made, our life is going, man, I have no hope of, of, of fixing my life. I have no hope of doing this. Then what we are doing is we are nullifying the grace of God. When we do that, we come to God in that way. Coming to this cross... The savior. This Saviour, this, this One, who, this, this, this Jesus who sees us right to the very bottom of our souls, He gets there with us. And with heaving compassion, He redeems us. The cross is the greatest expression of love this world has ever known. And God loves you. The evidence for that is that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the life that you could not live, die the death that you deserve, and then rose to life to give you eternal life, knowledge of God that you would be with him forever, that by faith in him, trust in him, we would receive eternal life. That's how much God loves you. That's how much God loves me. Friends, if you confess your sins and call upon Jesus Christ to save you, he will save you. Your sins in all of their f- fullness will be forgiven. And you don't need to add anything to it. You don't need to try and make it easy for God to forgive you, because you can't. Any attempt to make grace easier, any attempt to add to grace, cancels grace. We come to Jesus God. I need you to completely fix me. This is how these brothers approached their brother Joseph. And so let's look at Joseph's reply now to these brothers. And let's hopefully hear, hopefully we'll be able to hear Jesus saying these things to us. I've broken this down into four things and each of these four things are a sermon in and of themselves. Firstly, Joseph says, don't be afraid. Like, isn't that just amazing? (laughs) It's first, like We just talked about Matthew 9, that courage to accept the grace of God. Joseph here, don't be afraid. You and I can come to God without being afraid that he's going to give us what we deserve. Why? Because he's already given Jesus what we deserve. He's already given that to Jesus and God would be unjust to require a double payment for sin. We don't need to be afraid of Jesus. We don't need to, be, need to be afraid of God. Number two, Joseph asks, am I in the place of God? Now, there is a whole sermon in those seven words, and I, we don't have time to get into it, but let me just say this. Remember two weeks ago, Adam and Eve, what was their sin? What, what, how did uh, Satan tempt them? He tempted them by trying to get them to take the place of God, the position of judge, to judge good and evil. And here, Joseph says, am I in the place of God? He, he's saying, no, I'm, I'm not in the place of God to judge you. I'm not in the place to, to, to bring judgment upon your sin against me. And, and just so you know, that there is the key to forgiving other people, knowing that we are not the judge. God is the judge. Let's just consider that, that Joseph knew that he wasn't in the place of God. But Jesus is. Jesus came in the place of God. Jesus came as God. And instead of judging us, he took our judgment. Instead of condemning us, he took our condemnation. The third thing that Joseph says is, You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Okay, so that is a massive can of worms. Um, Joseph has just acknowledged, and what I believe the whole Bible testifies to, is that God is the one who holds all of the strings. God is behind everything. This doesn't make God the author of evil. It was by their own choice that the brothers did that. But what they intended as evil, God repurposed for Joseph's good and for the good of many people. The actions of these brothers, which were flooded with evil intent, were hijacked by God to bring good to the brothers and to their families and to Joseph. And we've got to note those words, many people there. Those words, many people, refers to the brothers and their families. Can we just admit that that's just really incredible? That the the, the brothers were... their intent was evil, their schemes were evil, and God hacked their intents, God hacked their schemes to bring about good for them while they were scheming. That's absolutely amazing that the, the worst evil God turns on its head, God inverts it and makes it into his good plan for us. This is how, God's, this is how big God's heart is towards sinners. You see, when we sin, it's not that God goes, ew, yuck, and has to be away from us for a while, and needs a bit of a time out until he's kind of settled down from that and kind of recovered from our horrible sin. Our, our sin doesn't make God flinch. Our sin doesn't make God recoil. It didn't hear. Our schemes, our evil intents, that makes God run to us. That's where he does his best work in our hearts. Then he says, therefore, don't be afraid. And, and, and there it is again, so maybe we should be paying attention to that. Don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. He comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Some of us don't want to hear Jesus comforting us or speaking kindly to us. Because if, they can, if we can imagine that Jesus is angry at us or harsh with us or yelling at us, it just becomes a bit, he becomes a bit easy to deal with. We can keep him at a bit of a distance then. We have to be vulnerable before him. When Joseph had the opportunity to stand over his brothers and subjugate them to his wrath, he doesn't. He instead provides for them. He speaks kindly to them and he comforts them. And like we said before, Jesus is just the better Joseph. This is what Jesus is like towards us. He comes to us and he comforts us and he speaks kindly to us. And this is where Joseph points points so clearly to Jesus. In Jesus, we don't have to be afraid because we know from him that God is for us. And if God is for us, who on earth could be against us? If God is for you, then your sin does not count against your eternal record. The overwhelming mountain of debt that your sin has accumulated has been put onto Jesus Christ, and it no longer counts against you. In Jesus, God provides everything for us. Because if he was, not, if, if, if he was so generous in giving us his son, why would he be stingy in giving us everything else? God is our provider. Jesus is our great redeemer. Though we have sinned against him, he runs to us with unconditional love and unparalleled forgiveness. So let's receive that forgiveness from Jesus Christ. Let's take that. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others